Glad you guys are here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke 11. Big thing. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus? That's the theme. Jesus is on this road to Jerusalem. It's three months. It's six months. We're not exactly sure how long, but it's his last journey into Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. And so he's spending a bunch of time uh, illustrating and emphasizing this is what it means to follow me. I'm not going to be here much longer. And when I'm gone, here's what I'm expecting y'all to act like. Last week we talked about prayer as a primary way of cultivating relationship with God. Jesus says the greatest command is to love God. That's a relational invitation. That's not a command or a demand for obedience. It's a relational invitation. Come, be my sons and be my daughters. Let me be your father. The primary way we cultivate that relationship is through prayer. And we said the big word for us in prayer is father. Everything else about prayer falls under that heading of Father, we're praying to, as children to our Father. And so that's the context that we approach, uh, through which we approach God. Today we're going to look at some things that appear to be really off topic, but I think we'll be able to tie them in. I'm going to read a couple of verses to try to set it up for us today. So Luke 11:14, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, or your Bible may say Beelzebub, The prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. So Jesus is talking about prayer in verse 13. And then in 14, he's in the middle of an exorcism. It's like, what what, is there a time gap? Kind of what happened there? But I think what's going on, um, Jesus is, he's in the middle of this exorcism. There's a guy, he's possessed by a demon. The demon doesn't allow him to talk. Jesus delivers the guy. That's what Jesus does. Remember Luke 4, 18 and 19. Jesus releases captives. So this guy's captive to this demonic spirit. And Jesus then releases him. And we know it works because the guy can talk now. He went from not being able to talk to being able to talk. And then there's three responses to this miracle. Some people are amazed. Some people accuse. And some people test. Those are the responses to this guy's deliverance. Amazement, accusation, and testing. And so tying it back into prayer, one of the reasons it's important for us to, to develop a consistent prayer life is because we live in an environment that's at times hostile to God. It's not always hostile to what God wants to do, but at times our environment is hostile to the work of God. In prayer, remember, it's not informing God about things he doesn't know. It's inviting God to get involved. So when we pray, we're saying, God, get involved. This is, a, this is hostile territory in some ways. And I'm inviting you to get involved in what's going on here. Accusations, testing, amazement. We'll look at each one in turn. First, accusation. So how does Jesus respond to people who are accusing him? Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to these guys, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. A house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can he stand? Or how can his kingdom stand? The answer is it can't. I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul, but if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your, do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. 
and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. So we have these guys who are accusing Jesus of driving out demons by the power of Satan. Beelzebub, Beelzebul, prince of demons, Satan's all the same guy. Different names, uh, descriptions for the same guy. So what these guys are saying is, well, Satan is empowering you. To drive out demons. And Jesus has a threefold response. First, he says, that's dumb. That doesn't make any sense at all. That means Satan is having a, it's a civil war within his house. He's, he's undermining his own work. So he's empowering me to cast out other people in his army. That doesn't make any sense at all. That's just dumb. And then he says, what about another explanation? There are some Jewish exorcists. There's some Jewish people who engage in this practice of exorcism. And he says, how are they driving out demons? Are you saying they're empowered by Satan as well? Well, then you're condemning yourself. There is another explanation. And y'all know there's another explanation. I can be empowered by God, just like your exorcists are empowered by God. I can be empowered by God to do this. And if I am empowered by God to do this, then that means the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, has come into your midst. And me driving out demons is a demonstration of that. They're enemy occupants. And so the Jewish exorcists experienced some success, but nothing like Jesus. His deliverance ministry was massive in terms of magnitude and quantity. He he cast out demons everywhere he went, lots of them. And so what he's saying is y'all should see that as evidence, as a sign that the rule and reign of God is coming to earth and we're driving out all of this, all of these enemy occupants in God's territory. So here's an example of that. There's a guy and he's really strong and he's guarding his house. You can't get into his house because there's a really strong guy guarding it. But if you bind that guy up, If you tie him up, then you're able to get in the house and take whatever you want. That's what's going on here. Satan is the strong man, and I'm the one who's stronger. I'm not empowered by Satan. I'm overpowering him. And that's evident by the fact that I'm driving out all of these demons. That's what's going on here. So y'all have got to make a choice. You're either for me or you're against me. Earlier he said if you're not against, if they're not against, they're for. Now he says if you're not a for, if you're not for, you're against. It's different ways of saying the same thing, which is there is no neutral ground. There is no gray. Nobody gets to sit on the fence. It's one way or the other, and y'all have to make a decision. Just like this guy. He was mute. Now he can talk. I just delivered him from this demonic oppression, and he's got a choice to make. The idea is that demons float around in the desert, so that's why he says that. This demon is floating around in the desert. And if this guy, whose heart is now clean, but it's empty, if you can say that, there, it, did, he, he did, it was occupied, and now it's empty. Jesus has kicked out the occupant. And he says, if he doesn't fill that spot, if he doesn't fill his heart with me, with following me, then he's leaving himself open to this demon and seven of his friends coming back and taking up residence. Then he's in worse shape than he was before he met me. You, You can't ride the fence. You can't live in the gray area. You're for or you're against. Same with this guy. He experienced the power of God in this miraculous deliverance, but that's not enough. He then has to follow that up by saying, okay, I'm cultivating, developing relationship with God. If you want to say it in good and bad, he's got to, there's good stuff that needs to fill up his heart. If not, then bad stuff is going to come back. A bad thing has been removed, and if he's not intentional about putting good things in his heart, i.e. relationship with the Lord, then, then he's opening himself up for bad things to come back and to come back with a vengeance. And he will actually be in worse shape. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We're responsible for the amount of revelation we've received. This guy 
has experienced a personal miracle. He couldn't talk, and now he can talk because Jesus ministered to him. So he doesn't have a whole lot of excuses when it comes to acknowledging who Jesus is. And if he chooses to reject after that experience, that's, that's significant for him is what Jesus is. It would be better for him if he'd never known me than for him to reject me after he's encountered me in that significant of a way. So those are the accusers. Jesus engages them. And you'll notice the way he ends is by inviting them. Make a decision. Make a choice. It's not, the door's not closed. You're for me or you're against me. You're on God's side or you're on Satan's side. But the choice is still here. Time is still available. You can decide which you want to be, what side you want to be on. Verse 27. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. This woman was amazed and she was saying, Blessed. Favored is Mary. Why? Because Mary is your mom. And what Jesus says is, well, yes, that's great that she's my mom. The reason she's blessed, though, is because she heard the word of God and obeyed it. It's not about biology. It's not about family relationship. It's about hearing and obeying. If you go back and read Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary and says, hey, you're going to have a son. And she says, how can I? I'm a virgin. And he says, the angel says, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. Here's what you name this child. And what Mary said is, okay, be it done to me as you will, or I'm your servant. Do what you want with me. She accepts this word from God to her. And what Jesus says is that's why she's blessed. She's blessed because when the angel of Gabriel spoke to her, she said, yes, to what he was saying. This is Luke 8. Very, very similar situation. Your mom, his mothers and brothers are coming to see him. They can't get through. Someone said, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. Jesus says, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. What he's doing is saying, biology doesn't matter. In this day and age, for a woman to, be, to have any sense of elevated status... That would be connected to what her son did. Women can do a whole lot on their own. And so if a woman was going to kind of move up the social ladder, it would be because of what her son did. And so that's kind of this idea, blessed are you, Mary, because you're the mother of Jesus. And Jesus breaks that. He says, no, that's not how it works at all. If she's going to be blessed or favored by God, it's going to be because she's heard him and responded to him. Now, for us, we don't necessarily tie into biology. I don't hear anybody saying anything biological, and somehow that puts them in a good relationship with God. But in the Bible Belt, we say all the time and hear all the time, when did you become a Christian? I was born a Christian. No, you weren't. You were born an American or something. You weren't born a Christian. Well, I've always been in church. That's great. My parents got baptized me when I was a baby. That's great. It's not enough. I went through confirmation class. Great. Not enough. That's not what blesses you. That's not what gives you, that's not what favors you in God's sight. At some point, each of us individually has to hear God and respond to Him. It's great that we have godly parents. It's great that we live in a place where going to church is culturally acceptable. But none of those things are sufficient. At some point, God's going to say, What have you done with me? Have you responded to the word that I've spoken to you? That's ultimately what he's looking for. That's what determines relationship with him. It's not based on our parents. It's not based on our religious background. 
It's not based on our cultural um, upbringing. It's based on us making an individual decision to follow him. Testers, verse 29. As the crowd increased, Jesus says, this is a wicked generation. That's not good PR. It asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now someone greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now someone greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eyes, the lamp of your body, when your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eyes are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. The last part gets a little tricky. Why is he talking about light? But the big picture there, these are people who are testing him. They want a sign from Jesus to confirm who they are. And he says, no, I'm not going to give you one any longer. And he talks about Jonah. You remember this story. The book of Jonah is really short. You can go back and read it this week. It's just four chapters. Jonah is a Hebrew or Jewish prophet. And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. It's a wicked city. Their wickedness has risen up before me. And so I want you to go and preach. And Jonah doesn't want to. And we find out at the end of the book, the reason Jonah doesn't want to go is he knows God is gracious and compassionate. And if the Ninevites repent, then God's not going to burn them down. And Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites and he wants them to burn. So he says, I'm not going because I want you to destroy them. And I know if they repent, you won't. So he jumps on a boat and goes in the opposite direction. There's a huge storm while he's on the boat and all the sailors are they're scared. They're freaking out because they think they're going to die. And Jonah says, it's my fault. I'm running away from my God. And the only thing that's going to make this storm go away is if you throw me in the ocean. They reluctantly agree to do that. And then, if you can believe it, a, a fish of some sort swallows Jonah. And he spends three days and three nights in the belly of some big fish, which is gross. And so he is for three days and three nights in this fish. And while he's in the, the belly, he repents and he recognizes, God, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I'll go where you want me to go. So this is even grosser. The fish vomits him up and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches there and the people do repent. And then Jonah in chapter four, he's a huge baby. He starts whining and he says, God, this is why I didn't want to go in the first place, because I knew this is what would happen. I wanted these guys to burn. And now look what's happened. You're going to bless them because they've repented. And I'm upset about that. So what Jesus says is the sign of Jonah, that's, that's all you get. Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. I'm three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah died metaphorically. I'm going to die literally. That's the only other sign that's out there for you. And what he says to these people who are Jews, who should know better, this wicked city of Nineveh repented when a reluctant prophet went and spoke to them. I don't know what it would look like for Jonah as a reluctant prophet to be in Nineveh. Maybe he whispered everywhere he went. or I don't know what he did, but he wasn't enthusiastic about being there. And the people still got it. And what Jesus is saying is, if they got that message, how can you not get this one? Someone greater than Jonah is here. My message is greater than his message. And my heart for you is greater than his heart for them. They responded and y'all haven't. They're going to judge you for that. Again, it's that idea. You've had more revelation and you've rejected it. The Queen of the South, you can read about her in 
First Kings, and in Second Chronicles, she's probably um, in your Bible. We say Queen of Sheba when you look at, um, look her up in Kings and Chronicles. So Solomon is the king at that point. Massively wise, massively wealthy. He's got an international reputation. And so this queen of an area in Arabia, Sheba, comes up to him because she wants to know if he's the real deal. And she says, I've heard of your fame. And so she came to test him, to ask him hard questions and see if he was really as smart as everybody said he was. And you can read, it's a really brief encounter. It's about nine or ten verses. And the Bible says, interesting, she's overwhelmed after she meets Solomon. That's the word the Bible uses. She's overwhelmed at his wisdom and at his wealth and at the favor of God on the nation of Israel that he's exercising through Solomon. And so Jesus says, again, we have this pagan queen who doesn't know anything about anything about Israel's God. She goes and meets Solomon and is so impressed with his wisdom and my favor on him, God's favor on him, that she acknowledges God. She acknowledges Israel's God. Y'all, as Jews, should know better. There's someone wiser than Solomon here. And there's someone who the, the favor of God is more strongly upon than Solomon here. And y'all are still not getting it. No, I'm not going to give you another sign. Everything that I've done, I've done out here in the open for you to see it. It's like a lamp on a stand. I'm not hiding anything from anybody. I'm speaking out in the open. I'm working these miracles out in the open. I want you to get it. And you don't. And you're asking me for a sign, and it's because you're wicked. And then the, culturally, the understanding of sight then was think about like a flashlight. So the source of the light is inside the instrument. And then you have a lens that's clear. And so when you flick the switch, the light from inside comes outside. That's how people thought your eyes worked. So there's light within you. And your eyes basically allow that light out so that you can see. Does that make sense? So there's stuff in here that's light. The light is in you. And if your eyes are clear, if they're healthy, then that light comes out and you can see. What Jesus says is your eyes are unhealthy, which actually the word is wicked. It's the same word when he calls them a wicked generation. He says your eyes are evil. They're wicked. And that's why you can't see what I'm doing. The reason you can't see, it's not because I hadn't performed enough Miracles. It's not because there aren't sufficient signs. It's because your eyes are wicked. And the reason your eyes are wicked is because your heart is. But that's not the end of the story. There's still hope. He says, let's let's make sure the light that's in you is not darkness. Let's make sure that what's going on in here, that's coming out through here, is not dark. There's still chance. There's still hope. and, And we can fix that. And then what's in you can actually be light. And you'll be able to see. That's how he closes that section. So these guys who are testing him, he doesn't give them what they want. They want a sign. That's not the issue. They just saw a guy who was mute who's talking. What else do they want? He's walked on water. He's raised people from the dead. He's fed 5,000 people with a boy's lunch. Like, what, what else do they need? The issue is not the lack of signs. The issue is hardness of heart. And that's what he addresses. But he doesn't condemn. He still gives them the opportunity to repent it responds. So what does that look like for us? Two things I want to think I want you thinking about um, as we look to wrap up. That word test in verse 16, others tested him, is the same word in chapter 4, or excuse me, in verse 4, the Lord's prayer, the prayer that he gives his disciples, lead us not into temptation. Temptation and test are actually the same word um, in Greek, which for me is fascinating to think about both of those things together. When I think of test, I tend to think of something that's good where I can show 
hey, this is it's like a test in school. You get to show what you know. So sometimes God tests us so we can demonstrate, hey, there's actually there's actually something going on in here. Like I actually have some trust and some faith in you. That's what he does with Abraham when he says, I want you to sacrifice your son on a mountain. The Bible says God did that to test him. He wanted to know what's in there. How strong is that faith in Abraham? When I think temptation, I think run away as fast as you can. That's from the devil and he's trying to get me to sin. But it's actually the same word. This is from Luke 4. You may remember this. Jesus is in the wilderness and the Bible says he was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. That word tempted But this is what we read. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem, had Jesus stand on the highest point. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, God will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you won't strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus's response, don't put the Lord your God to the test. They're both of those words flying around each other. Again, it's the same word. In verse 2 that says he's tempted is used in verse 12 to say don't test the Lord. So there's connection there between those two concepts. And I hadn't fully worked out the differences. I ultimately don't know that it matters. And we don't have time for it this morning. But when it comes thinking back to prayer, why is it important to pray that general idea and then to think specifically, lead me not into temptation, you will encounter and I will encounter circumstances in people who will test slash tempt. It's an opportunity for me to show this is, this is what's going on. I actually have confidence and trust in the Lord. It's an opportunity for me to see, you know what? I need to grow in this area. I may just be hanging on by my fingernails. And it's a trial and God's going to get me through and I'll be stronger and more refined on the other side of it. It may be a temptation, something that's going to lure me or entice me away from God and towards sin. But regardless of what those things are, what I need to remember is God's not asking me to go through that by myself. If you, it's a, it's open book, if you like. He's saying, like, invite me in. Let me get involved. It's not like a test in school where you, you have to prove yourself. See what, what's, what you know. What he's saying is, in the Lord's prayer is, I recognize my proclivity towards sin. And so I'm saying, God, don't, don't lead me into temptation. It's very interesting. As soon as Jesus prays that in a handful of verses, then he's being tested. Same word. And so we want to recognize in our life this regular for us, this common occurrence for us. And we want to be aware enough of our own hearts to say to the Lord, I'm inviting you into this. This is difficult for me. I don't like them very much. And you're asking me to forgive them or I don't enjoy their company and you're asking me to be gracious to them. Or this situation, I'm very much tempted to cut a corner because of A, B, and C. And I'm asking you, you've got to show me another way out or I'm going to, I'm going to cave. Invite him into those difficult situations. Recognize your own heart, their own areas where you're prone to sinfulness and say, God, I need you in these things. Don't think that he's kind of throwing you out there all by yourself to see if you can sink or swim. Last one, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Verse 2 and verse 20. Verse 20, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 2, your kingdom come. So I hear those things and go, are they, is the prayer already answered? In the Lord's prayer, this prayer that Jesus says, here's how I want you to pray, disciples, us, 
Anytime you pray, you don't have to use the exact words, but that's the heart of it. God, we want your kingdom, your rule and your reign to be extended into our community. We want more dirt under your influence. That's what we're asking for. And then in verse 20, he says, the kingdom of God is, has come upon you. Like it's a done deal. Was the prayer already answered in 18 verses or is there something else going on there? And I think that tension between verse 2 and verse 20, is one of the most significant things as followers of Jesus that we need to figure out how to navigate. We've got to figure out how to live in the dynamic tension between your kingdom come and the kingdom of God is already upon you. This future and this present. The future reality, God, we want your kingdom to come. The present reality, your kingdom is already here. For us to live in that dynamic tension is vital if we're going to bear fruit Long term. Again, we live in a hostile environment, and so recognizing how to hold on to both of those things is really important for us. If you were to look at the history of the church, and most of you are never going to do that, and I don't blame you, you can see people fall into one or two camps. There's this camp over here that says the kingdom of God has already come, and so there should, nobody should ever get sick. And if you get sick, you should be healed immediately. And if you're not, it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. And nobody should be poor. Everybody, you can be as rich as you want. Ask God for any, you ask him for a million dollars and he'll give it to you. That all of the effects of the curse, all of the results of the fall have been completely done away with by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we can live under the umbrella of all of God's blessings now. And anything that's not a blessing we can, get, we can handle right here, right now, if we just have enough faith. That's people who live fully in the already camp. Most of us don't land there. We land over here in the not yet camp. And we tend to walk around with uh, a pretty small view of what God wants to do in our world. We tend to say, well, you know, that's my cross to bear. Uh, we don't really believe that we intellectually would believe people will be healed if we pray, but it's nothing that really stirs our hearts, nothing that we go after. We don't really expect God to move in any significant way in our community because that's just, it's just not time for that yet. And so if these guys who are already guys are triumphalistic, we kind of fall into this other um, ditch, which would be more pessimistic, maybe uh, thinking less of what God wants to do now. And what we need to figure out is how do I hold on to both of those things? How can I say your kingdom come and your kingdom is already here? I don't want to give you too much theology. We've done this before, so I'm going to move through this really quickly. Jewish view of history. Everything now is evil. God's going to send in the Messiah, and then everything's going to be great. And they looked at this very materially, very tangibly. Israel's going to be elevated. They're going to be the number one nation in the world, and everybody else is going to serve them. And that's what's going to happen. That's why Jesus had such a hard time, because he didn't do that. He said, the kingdom of God is coming near. And so what they thought is, show me the line in the sand. Yeah, you're healing people. That's great. Yeah, you're delivering people. That's great. You're preaching a great message. But guess what? Rome is still the top dog, not us. And you're not doing anything about it. And so it caused a lot of conflict for him, a lot of tension in people's hearts. This is the New Testament view of history. Just trust me, I can't uh, take the time to build it for you. But we live in that in-between. It's supposed to be green. The color there is not great. We live in between those two white lines. It's not yellow. It's not blue. It's green. So 
Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the first line. When Jesus returns, that's the second white line, and we live in between those two things. Jesus has come as a Savior. He has not yet come as a judge. That's in Revelation 20, 19 and 20, and you'll see what that looks like. So that's when Jesus will finally destroy every enemy, and then everything will be perfection. Remind us of Genesis 1 and 2. But until then, we live in between. So there, And it's jagged. It's not this neat demarcation. It's, this, it's, a, it's a battlefield is what's in between those two white lines, and that's where you live. Let's see the next one. You live right there in that green section. It, again, it's, it's a battlefield. It's not nice and neat. And so there's influences from the evil age, from sin and Satan and death and the fall that we have to deal with. And there's influences from the age to come. And, we, and all of that is mixed up for us. And so the enemy is still stealing and killing and destroying. And Jesus is making all things new. And those things are banging into each other in your life on a daily basis. And again, our natural, we're supposed to hold these things in tension. But our natural tendency is to pick one or the other because it's just easier. It's just easier to say it's always going to be health and wealth, and that's what we're going for, or it's easier just to say nothing's going to get better till Jesus comes back. It's difficult to hold both of those things in tension and say, no, the kingdom of God is coming, but is not fully here. It's messy, and we don't like that. We want neat and clean. But where you live is a battlefield, and those are not neat and clean, where these two kingdoms are banging into each other. We already know who's going to win, but there's still a fight. And you're a part of that. And so that's why it's important for us to hold on to both of these things. Let's see the next. To do that, you need both of these things. You need a theology of pain or suffering, and you need a theology of power. So, verse 2, pray for the kingdom to come. That's a theology of suffering. That's saying everything's not great yet. And it's not going to be great until Jesus returns. We recognize that the devil and death have been defeated, but they haven't been destroyed. That doesn't happen until the end of Revelation. You can go read about that. Until then, the devil and death continue to exert influence. We still live in a fallen world. God has not made all things new yet. He is making all things new, but he's not made all things new. And so while we're in that process, people will struggle and suffer. That's going to happen. And so our response as followers of Jesus is to walk with compassion and humility. We don't blame people. You don't have enough faith. We don't do that. We know, we recognize, God, we have to be fully dependent upon you. We know sometimes you're going to work in ways that we think, and sometimes you're going to work in ways that we don't think, and sometimes we're not going to see you work at all. That's humility. Everything's an open hand. We don't claim to know it all. There's no technique that says if we pray these three words, and you're going to be healed, or your life is going to change, and you're not going to suffer and struggle any longer. There's a humility in us. In regard to other people, at the same time, we want to develop a theology of power. Verse 20, the strongman has been bound. And so we can take what we want from his house, which is people. All of the things that he's stolen, go and get them back in the lives of people that you love and in the community that you're a part of. We can see God work in miraculous ways now. People can be healed, even if medicine says no. God can still say, yes, we don't have to suffer and struggle forever. People who have addictions can be set free. Those, 
the things that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of that stuff can still happen because it happens in Acts when Jesus has already ascended into heaven. That's where we live now. We can say, well, Jesus isn't physically here anymore, but the church is. Read the book of Acts. That's us. So those things are on the table for us, and so we can walk with boldness, with confidence, and with authority that says the strong man has been bound. We didn't do that, but Jesus did. And as people who are on his team, then we get to enjoy the benefit of the fact that he is, again, he's not empowered by Satan. He's overpowered Satan. And so that clears the deck for us. And we want to hold on to both of those things. So the challenge for us is do you want to be a thermometer or do you want to be a thermostat? Do you want to be a thermometer? That reflects the, uh, the atmosphere. So right now a thermometer in here would say it's like 78 degrees or something. If we had a thermostat that worked, we could turn it down. <laughs> and we could make it 72 degrees in here. Which one are you? Think about your family. Think about your school. Think about your business. Think about your community. Do you tend to reflect the spiritual atmosphere of the people that you're with, of the environment that you're in? So in here, if worship is strong, then you're all in. And if it's flat, then you're more like this. You're just reflecting what's going on around you. If you're with a group of people who are Christians and they love the Lord, then your language and your what you talk about, everything changes there. If you're with a group of people who are more hostile, then maybe you reflect that as well. Is that you? Don't hear that as guilt. I'm asking you a question. What I'm saying is you have to be that way. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and he changes things. He doesn't reflect things. You can be a thermostat. You, like, hear me, you can change spiritual atmosphere in your home, in your class, in your school, in your office, and in your city. You can do that. Not because you're awesome, but because the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives within you. And that's what he does. It's just a choice for, for us to say, I'm, I don't want to just reflect. I want to influence To do that, I recognize I've got to hold on to both of these things. The kingdom is already here, and it's not yet here. So there are going to be times where we step forward saying we're we're changing. We want to see an atmosphere change. And we're going to get kicked in the teeth. And we say, okay, the kingdom is not fully here. That's not going to cause us to quit, to sit on the sideline. We're going to continue to engage because the kingdom is already here. Because Jesus has already defeated sin and Satan and death. We can say confidently, let's take, let's take back what the enemy has stolen. Some of it we won't get, but some of it we will. And it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it for the people who are living under his influence and control. It's worth it for the institutions that are racked with wickedness and injustice. It's worth it for us to, to try to be a thermostat. In those areas. And again, it's not about our giftedness. It's not about our strengths. It's not about our talents. It's about the fact that the Holy Spirit lives within us and He is an atmosphere changer. That's what He does. And so everywhere you go, you're bringing Him with you. He's already there and you're bringing Him with you. 
And so you can begin to change climate and atmosphere. So I was speaking about in worship. That's one of the ways that we do it. Is our worship, and how do we, I don't get it. I don't. I don't see spiritually. I'm pretty dense in that regard. But I know it's true. When we worship, it changes things outside of this room that have an impact way beyond Sundays. And so that's one of the reasons we do what we do on Sunday morning. And one of the reasons we're constantly encouraging you. Figure out what it looks like to worship on your own. That's an atmosphere changer. Your obedience, particularly if it's risky, that's an atmosphere changer. Being willing to engage with people. Engage situations. Those types of, that's thermostat behavior, thought not thermometer behavior. So my question to you as we close, which one do you want to be? Let's pray. I gave you a ton of talking. It's a lot of stuff. And it's hot, so I don't know how much you grabbed onto. So we're going to be quiet for a minute. And you can kind of sift in your own mind what, if anything, was relevant and grab onto that. Whatever that was, just before the Lord, just say, what do you need to do? Is there something you need to repent of? God, I've been a thermometer. And I confess, when I get in these situations, I'm a big old sissy. Or I look at the consequences and I, I can't do that. It's easier to go along to get along. Maybe that's you. Is it, God, I've been riding on somebody else's coattails. I've been riding on my parents' coattails, my spouse's coattails. I haven't, if I'm honest, said, okay, I want to receive the word that you're giving to me, and I want to be obedient to that. I had not been like Mary. I've much more been along for the ride. I want to confess that. Repent of that. Maybe something else. I feel like the Lord is asking you to do something. Take a step. Engage. My encouragement. Think about one area of your life. Just one, not all. What's one sphere? If you look at it and you say, the kingdom is definitely not fully operational there. Maybe in your house, maybe in a relationship with your spouse or your kids, it may be in your office or your school, maybe someplace in our city. Just pick one that's close to your heart, and you would say the kingdom is not fully being expressed there. When I say kingdom, that's the rule and reign of God. So the rule and reign of God is not fully being expressed in fill in the blank. Which one's closest to your heart? And then say to the Lord, I want to be a thermostat. If you will say that. I want to be a thermostat in that setting. I don't want to be a thermometer. I don't want to reflect the status quo. I don't want to reflect the climate that somebody else or something else is dictating. 
I absolutely don't want to reflect the climate that the enemy is pushing. So what does it look like for me to be a thermostat in a secular environment? What does it look like for me to be a thermostat in a hostile environment? What does it look like for me to be a thermostat if I'm 14 years old? If I'm a stay-at-home mom or if I'm the low man on the totem pole? What does it look like, God? Jesus says in John, he only does what he sees the Father doing. So maybe that's the first prayer. God, show me what you're doing. There's no place from which you are completely absent. So show us in these areas where we're saying we want to be a thermostat. Where are you already at work? Even if it's just subtle and small, show us so that we can begin to do those things with you. God, I thank you that it's not our job to change atmosphere. But I also thank you that you give us the privilege of partnering with you in doing that. That you want to work through us to see things change. And so God, my, my desire for us is that each one of us, according to our own wiring and calling, will begin to function as thermostats in the places where you've planted us. And God, I want to pray for those who are currently doing that, who are maybe getting frustrated or they're, just, they're wearing out because they're not seeing things change. And God, I pray you give them a glimpse of, where you, of, of some fruit this week. Something to encourage them and to let them know it, it's not for nothing. Their faithfulness has not been wasted. So Holy Spirit, we open our lives to you. And again, we say, thermostats. That's what we want to be. We want to walk in the fullness of the power that's available to us. Recognizing that there's going to continue to be suffering. We want to hold on to both of those things as we walk forward. In Jesus' name, amen.